Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. friends, this is Janet Parshall, and I want to welcome you to the best of In the Market. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open, but I do hope you'll enjoy today's edition of the best of In the Market with Janet Parshall. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years of Palestinians and Israelis friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Get ready to be thinking critically and biblically this hour. And for the record, those two are not mutually exclusive. Although, oftentimes, there's a bit of mythology that gets posited on a regular basis that presupposes that faith and reason or religion and science are at wars with one another. Is that true? Well, you know, with the release of Oppenheimer, the movie, it's got a lot of people thinking again about Einstein's theory of relativity very much the backstory in Oppenheimer, by the way. And there was an essay that Einstein actually wrote in 1954 called Science and Religion. And you might be surprised if we were playing a game of trivial pursuit. I don't know how many of us would subscribe this quote to Albert Einstein, but nonetheless, it's true. Science, he said, without religion is lame and religion without science is blind. That was Einstein. I'll say it again. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is is blind. And what's so unique about this is it says something about the man who came up with that essay. This quote is often used to show his religiosity and his belief in the compatibility, indeed, the mutual interdependence of science and religion. So I would say that the burden of proof, a standard in the law, falls on the shoulders of those who declare that science and religion are, in fact, at war. And the man we're about to talk with, a scientist in his own right, would say that they are in 
harmony with one another. And I love his use of that word. We'll get into that in a bit. But let me introduce my guest to you. Dr. Seigart is with us. He is a biochemist. He has been a professor at New York University, the University of Pittsburgh and Rutgers University. He's authored over 200 scientific publications and four previous books and has served as division director at the National Institutes of Health. He's also the editor-in-chief of God and Nature magazine and vice president of the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He is a lay leader in the United Methodist Church, and he joins us today with an absolutely fabulous book called Science and Faith in Harmony. And I must tell you what the subtitle is, because I promise we'll get into the breakdown of these words in a moment. Contemplations on a Distilled doxology. Just hang on to that. We'll come back into a minute. But so I just want to thank you first and foremost for the gift of your time. You understand metaphysics much better than I do, I'm sure. I can't give back to you what you're giving to me right now. So I thank you for the irreplaceable gift that you're giving us. But even more than that, I thank you for this book because very often the idea that science and religion are at war with one another is nothing more than a cudgel to science people, to silence people who somehow believe that the two are interconnected, are, as you say in your book, in harmony with one another. And uh, we need something like this because if the book of Jude is correct, and of course it is, it tells us to contend for the faith. So when we get into the marketplace of ideas and we hear this idea, unless we have multiple initials after our name, unless we were a biochem major when we were in college, work in a lab, have a scientific degree, we're immediately science because we think we're not going to be able to, quote, prove the existence of God, something you talk about in your book, uh, and therefore we just silence ourselves when we get into the marketplace. You, in fact, put together multiple vignettes, your word, not mine, in this book, which I thought was a brilliant way to write it. That really takes a look at various aspects of the scientific world and see how they ebb and flow in harmony. And I thought it was magnificent. So thank you for giving us an important tool for contending. But I must start out, if I can, from the beginning, because you make no apologies. And you wrote another book to this end, but I think it would serve our friends listening all across the country to know something about how a man who's a scientist who was a former atheist became a follower of Christ. Tell me about that. I will, but first, let me thank you for having me on. It's it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to be talking with you. Thank so you. I appreciate that, and uh, I I'd be happy to talk about how I came to faith, which which is a fairly unusual story. And as you mentioned, I have an earlier book called The Works of His Hands, which talks about my faith journey. Um, the reason it's unusual is because of where I started from. Uh, I, I, I began life, I was born into a family of atheists and Marxists. My parents had been members of the American Communist Party in the 1930s, and they were pretty radical uh, left-wing. They, as I said, they, they had been communists, and they, uh, they left the party, but they remained very left-wing the rest of their lives. Uh, and, of course, part of that included a very strong atheism. Uh, so my atheism was not similar to that of many atheists that we know or we know of who had been born or grew up in in the church and then left it for various reasons and decided that, you know, atheism was correct. I never knew anything about religion, <laughs> except that it was bad and wrong and evil and all that <laughs> stuff. So uh, for me, it was a long journey, and it took it took a lot of experiences. It took the mercy of the Holy Spirit, who guided me at various points, and eventually uh, I did come to believe that 
God might be real, and eventually came to see that Jesus Christ was, in fact, my Savior. And I've been a follower ever since. Uh, and my, I see my mission now, as I'm retired from doing active research, to spread the word that you so eloquently uh, described in your introduction, to, to spread the word that the idea that science and Christianity are opposites, that you have to choose one, you can't do have both in your life, that that is a terrible falsehood. It's a myth. I sometimes call it a, a lie of Satan. Mm. Uh, it's, it just needs to be struggled against, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. Well, it, if the book is emblematic of what you're trying to do, then you do it with excellence. And I'm so very, very grateful. And uh, I, again, I was thinking as you were talking that you really, in order to have gravitas in the marketplace of ideas, you have to bring a certain ethos. And so when you're peer-reviewed, when you're published, when you've got that kind of curriculum vitae that speaks to the esteemed institutions where you worked, you have credibility. So you're allowed foray into the world of scientific academia where uh, if you don't have the credentials, you're not. But more importantly, you bring the eloquence of your argument to it. And uh, I love the book because my first opportunity to read it, I thought, oh, dear, do I have to view this with a foreknowledge of science that's going to help me to understand these principles? And what you do so wonderfully, and I really want to underscore this for our friends, is this is written for the layman. Now, obviously, Dr. Gard is brilliant, uh, and there are all kinds of things he could have launched to in, into deeper uh, examination on scientific theories, particularly biochemistry. But he does it in a way that you and I can understand so that we can turn around and say, ah, there's a connection. There's a harmony. We'll talk about that harmony when we get back. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. It's an honor to spend the hour with Dr. Cy Gart. He is not only a biochemist by training and has taught at New York University, University of Pittsburgh, and Rutgers University, but he joins us today as the author of his latest book, Science and Faith in Harmony, Contemplations on a Distilled Doxology. And in the book, he puts multiple vignettes together, 40 of them, by the way, for oh, 44, actually, for your review. Wonderful little gems of an idea that get you to just think and ruminate on what he's saying about the relationship, the harmony. And I'll use his word again between science and religion. Uh, let me go to this idea of harmony. I was thrilled to read that music was very much a part of your background. And I find it interesting because there's a lot of math. My background is music as well. And while I could not uh, confess any forte of skill at all in math, I certainly do love music. But there's such an order and form and shape and rules that make it such an, es an esoteric experience, if you will. But you see, you purposely picked up this idea of harmony and I would love for you to explain to our guests, because I thought that relationship is not one of confrontation, but one of harmony. There is an ebb and flow between religion, Christianity, and science as well. Please explain that to our friends. Sure. Um, yeah, the idea of harmony uh, did come to me when I was writing the book, uh, probably because of my musical background. I, I actually, uh, as, a, as a teenager, I thought I might try to become a musician. 
the only thing keeping me from doing that was uh, not enough talent. But I did, <laughs> I did play uh, instruments. I played the flute and guitar. I went to the High School of Music and Art, where I learned a lot about harmony, musical theory in general. Uh, and the thing about harmony, if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. If you hear, a, let's say, a choir of, of 12 people or 15 people, or you hear a, a, an orchestra of maybe 30 people, they're never playing the same notes, are they? They're playing different notes. They're singing different notes. The bass and the soprano are not singing the same melody. Uh, but even though they're singing different notes, they go together beautifully. And they make they make the music, the melody may be lovely, but when you hear the harmony, let's say, think of your favorite hymn and being sung by, you know, a, a singer with a wonderful voice, but in the background is is a bunch of people singing harmony, it's just, it just carries you away, right? I mean, that's that's what music does for me. And I realized that science and faith do not play the same notes. They don't say the same thing. If you think about, you know, uh, the science of whatever, of biology or, or the science of, you know, the, the uh, astronomical world, and then you think of, the, of what the Bible says, they're not exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. but they go together beautifully. Mm -hmm. And that's why I call this science and faith are in harmony. I mean, it could be, it could have been that they're dissonant, that you listen to the two and they have nothing to do, listening to them together is just nothing but, you know, uh, unpleasant dissonance, the opposite of harmony, and that's not the case. Yes. You write this in the book, the fact is that a scientific worldview and a worship of God not only are compatible, but are intertwined in a mutually loving and complementary a harmonious relationship. So there is an ebb and flow between the two. I was thinking when I read that, I underlined it in the book because I thought that was so good, that Blaise Pascal said that science begins on the frontier of religion. So as far back as that 17th century French mathematician, he could understand that there was a relationship between the two. So you, you, taught, me some, you taught me so many things in the book, but one of the things that was very important for me to understand is that and maybe it's because about language, and you have a whole chapter that just talks about language and how we convey ideas. But we, we come up with this phrase, scientific proof. It's scientific proof. When in reality, science is a methodology and doesn't prove, it just discovers how things are put together and happen. I thought that was right. so insightful. Talk to our friends about that. Well, you know, often when I engage with atheists or they engage with me, they'll say, show, show me your proof for God. And I say, what kind of proof are you looking for? And they say, scientific proof. And I say to them, are you aware that science never proves anything? <laughs> and they're not. They don't understand that. Science is not in the business of ever proving anything because proof belongs to mathematics and logic. In mathematics and logic, you can prove statements to be true or equations to be true. But in science, we're never done. We're never finished. Uh, discoveries made at one point will be overturned 10, 30 years later by new discoveries. And we all know that. So scientists, I challenged one of these people to find any paper in the literature, look at Google Scholar and look for the word proof, and find one paper out of the millions which uses the word proof. And of course he did not. He could not, because it's not done. <laughs> so we don't use 
that word. We talk about evidence. We talk about strong evidence and weak evidence. And the evidence for the existence of God, scientific evidence, as well as other evidence, is very strong. And it, to me, it was completely convincing. To me, it just it opened up my thinking completely, and it took a lot of burden off of me when I'm contending for the faith, because I'm, science isn't used to provide proof. And as you said, and I thought this was also uh, such a tutorial moment for me through your writing, that what is um, the scientific evidence today, the strong versus the weak, as you pointed out in the book, might be supplanted by new evidence in the future. So there is a That's continuum right. in science, if you will, because it's about a process. It's not about arriving at a hard and fast conclusion. Exactly. Exactly, yes. Wow. And I mean, you know, people will say things like, well, uh, you know, when back in the old days, the time of the Bible or the time of the Middle Ages when people believed this and that, that's all been disproven by science because now we know and then whatever it is. But what these people forget is that they're talking about the science that we know today. That is not the same science that we knew 100 and 50 years ago. In fact, Mm -hmm. it's completely different. Mm -hmm. And it will be completely different in the future. We can expect that. Again, just a tremendous book written for you and me, the lay people out there. You don't necessarily, although I do know there are people for whom this is your thing, (laughs) and God bless you for it. But you don't have to have all of the initials. You don't have to have a background in science. You can just understand that there really is this magnificent, I'm going to use Dr. Gart's word, this magnificent harmony between science and faith. And his book gives you 44 chapters, golden nuggets to just really ruminate on and take away the wisdom he provides. When we come back, we're going to dive into some of those nuggets back after this. Visiting with Dr. Cy Gart, who's editor-in-chief of God and Nature magazine and also vice president of the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He's written multiple books. He's been published hundreds of times in scientific publications, and he joins us today with his newest book, Science and Faith in Harmony, Contemplations on a Distilled Doxology. Uh, so many questions and so little time, <laughs> really. It's an oft-used phrase, but when you've got 44 gems like you do in this book, I was really hard-pressed to decide which one I wanted to dive into first. But I had a thought during the break that I wanted to go back to, and that is some of the animus against faith emanating out of the scientific community. And I'm wondering, Dr. Gard, if part of it might be, and I stand as an observer on the outside of the lab, certainly not in the white coat in the lab, but I'm wondering if it's because there's a chafing internally of really what the job and the purpose of science is. If I can put it in very common parlance, oh, that's how that works. So if you have the, oh, that's how it works moment in science, oh, that's what the DNA helix does, oh, that's what the nuclei is all about, that if, if it works, there is automatically stated or quietly observed a presupposition that if it works, there had to be something or someone that made it work. And maybe therein lies the challenge for some. Am I right or wrong on that? Well, I mean, I think I think that um, most scientists, whether they're religious or not, uh, are driven by the desire to understand how things work, as you mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. And by things, I mean everything from, you know, uh, volcanoes to living organisms. And and that drive to discover and understand, to me, is not diminished by 
the knowledge that I have and that Christians have that everything that we see and everything that we know about is a creation of, of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Even though we know that, we still want to know, okay, we know that God created everything, but what are the details? <laughs> In other words, yeah. you know, we, we know that God created life, for, as an example, but how does life work? You know, what, what how does, and, and the more we learn about those things, whether it's life, in my case, for example, or how, how the planets move, the more we learn the scientific answers to how these things happen, the more we see the hand of a divine agent, mm-hmm. the hand of God wow. Wow. in the creation. You are a teacher at heart because at the end of every single one of these chapters, you give us three opportunities to do more examination. First, there's a QR code. Then there are some books that you suggest. And lastly, a video. Explain why you chose to do that. So the chapter doesn't really end when you're done writing. You're telling us to examine even more. And and that's actually why I did it, because these, as you said, these are short chapters. I wanted to structure this book, and this was actually my wife's idea, and I always give her credit, uh, <laughs> kind of like kind of like a uh, a devotional without calling it a devotional. So in other words, something you can read in in a, in, in a few minutes, in a half an hour, and take away something. But to do that, it means I have to leave out a lot of details. And I didn't want the book to be too technical, even though it's all about science. So the way I thought about doing that was to give a list of information that people who are really interested in that topic can go to and learn the details on their own. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. So let me just take one, and I hope to, with the time that we remain, just to try to pick out some of these. And again, friends, if this gets you curious, then there's so much more where this all comes from. Because remember, there are 44 little chapters. And it's so funny, Dr. Grout, you should say devotional, because as I was reading this, I thought, wow, you really could make this a kind of devotional as you set your mind on things (laughs) above. So I concur with your wife on that. That's very much the setup on this. But I love the chapter on humans and chaos. And this is important because you hearken back to It's a Wonderful Life as a perfect example of uh, what this experiment would be like if there was total chaos in the world. So explain this to our friends. See, the, the, I'm very in, I've always been very interested in, in a scientific theory called chaos theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, chaos theory applies to very complex situations where it's not really, it's not really possible to predict what's going to happen next. And that's because, you know, the, the, it, it's not a simple situation where you can isolate all the causes and then all the effects. So what, where does chaos come in? Well, it turns out that chaos theory is why we cannot predict the weather in advance. It's why we can't predict uh, what's going to happen in societies, in politics, in social, anything that's complex. And, of course, almost all of human uh, Society is complex, including interactions between families, within families. It's very hard to predict anything. But the other thing that we know is that even though it's hard to predict, there's so much interaction that goes on between people that no single individual human, no matter what you want to, how you want to describe them, does not have an effect on everyone else. 
And now that sounds crazy, mm. but people have heard of the butterfly effect because of the TV show. Mm-hmm. And what the butterfly effect is all about is that everything that happens in the world affects everything else. So a butterfly affects everything else. And people, anything I say and do, everything you say and do will affect everyone in some way. Hmm. We're going to put a capstone on this and the idea of how It's a Wonderful Life really is about the experiment of chaos. Dr. Seigard is with us, brilliant, does a wonderful job of really explaining this intersection between science and faith. He uses the word very apropos, harmony between science and faith. And we eventually are going to break down what distilled doxology is because he writes about that in the book as well. More with Dr. Gart right after this. There's a sense of anxiety in our country, and I know you feel it too. As a partial partner, you can help reach the world with the truth and peace found only in Christ. And as a partial partner, you'll receive exclusive behind-the-scenes information and benefits directly from me, keeping you up to date on what's going on in our world. So call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Fascinating conversation with Dr. Cy Gart. If you're just joining us, welcome to the broadcast. You are definitely going to want to hear this from the beginning, and we've made that easy for you with our podcast. Just go to our website, in the market with JanetParshall.org. Left-hand side of the page, bunch of words. Look for these two right next to each other. Past programs. Click it on and download this hour in its entirety. You can do it for either of the two hours we do every day going back a year. But there's such good information in this first half hour. You're going to want to get it from Dr. Gart. Let me reintroduce him formally to you again, if I can. He's a biochemist. He has been a professor at New York University, the University of Pittsburgh, Rutgers University. He's authored over 200 scientific publications and four previous books. He served as division director at the National Institutes of Health. He is also the editor-in-chief of God and Nature magazine and the vice president of the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He's also a lay leader in the United Methodist Church. And his newest book is called Science and Faith in Harmony, Contemplations on a Distilled Doxology. And if I may, just to put a capstone on your um, vignettes dealing with humans and chaos, you used as a paradigm for this, which I thought was so helpful to me, and I know it will be to others, of It's a Wonderful Life. And of course, he has this moment where he says it would be better if I'd never been born. And then we go on this fanciful journey of exactly that. What would life have been like if George Bailey had never been born? And it, it really defines this chaos theory that's out there that one person's life impacts so many others. In fact, you say that the theory, which was unknown at the time of the film, underscores the complex that complex systems are highly dependent on initial conditions. So without us knowing it, this Christmas time classic is really a picture of how one life impacts another, impacts another, impacts another. Now that's fascinating from a scientific vantage point, but it's crucial from a theological vantage point because it really does give us a reason for understanding why we have to see the image of God in our fellow man and why we need to act in such a way as to respect and love our neighbor as ourself. Am I right or wrong on that point? Oh, that that's beautifully stated and, and exactly correct because, I mean, what did Jesus tell us? Uh, you know, when God came to talk to us and explain things to us and teach us, what did he say? He told us, as you said, he told us to love our neighbors and, 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 and love even our enemies. And, 
you know, spread love throughout the world. And, of course, because if you don't, <laughs> the results can be catastrophic. Mm. And, you know, as you said, with the uh, George Bailey, the Jimmy Stewart character, suddenly is never existed, it changed so many things, mostly worse for the worse, because he was a good man. He he was unhappy at some point, but before that, he had done wonderful things and saved people, etc. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it and that's true for all of us. It's really true for all of us when you think about it. Um, there, if, if somebody you know had never existed, life for you and life for so many other people would be completely different. And what it does also is it tells us something which is actually something I think we need to hear today, which is that every human life is valuable. It doesn't matter whether you're down and out or you're having a hard time or things are just not going well. Your life is incredibly valuable, mm. not just for yourself and the people who know you and love you, but for the whole world. Yes, yes. Something that gives us pause when we stop and think about that. One of your chapters is called Distilled Doxology. That's part of the subtitle of this particular book. And again, so instructive for me as the reader. I underline this because I thought it was so good. Science explains nothing about the ultimate purpose of things. And that's important because I think so often for the believer, when we find ourselves confronted with this idea that science and religion are at war with one another, we see them as an equal plane. They, they are two markedly different entities with markedly different purposes. You go on to say it isn't supposed to. It doesn't tell us why things happen a certain way or how they should happen or what's behind it all. And that takes us to where you start talking about uh, Carl Sagan's quote, which I thought was fascinating because I've heard this so many times by atheists, which is uh, in the PBS documentary Cosmos, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Ipso facto, if God is God, there better be extraordinary evidence proving the existence of God. And that's when you teach us about the difference between strong and weak evidence and the job is in proof. It's this this moving continuum of evidence. But talk to me about why you came up with the word distilled doxology and what you mean by that in its application. I came up with that while I was writing my first book, and I I used it a little bit in the first book. And I came up with it because I was thinking about um, the whole concept of praising God. And, you know, when I'm in church and we get to the doxology, it's always very moving for me Mm -hmm. because I feel it so deeply. Mm -hmm. And then it struck me that science, what is science? It's the study of God's creation. And what could be more praising of God than studying his creation as deeply and as hard as we can. And so what I wrote was, without much thinking about it, science is distilled doxology. Mm. And what that means is it's the purest form of praise. How can we praise God more than by devoting ourselves to studying everything that he has done? Mm. So good. Well, and and I was thinking when you were talking, isn't this the perfect application of the word awe? In the laboratory, when you're looking at something in a microscope that cannot be seen with the naked eye, and yet there's form and substance and order, that gives us awe. If awe isn't intrinsically linked to worship, then I don't know what worship is. And so it's that awe factor, I think, that you're talking about. In fact, you write this beautifully. Scientific research is pure worship, worship refined by distillation, distilled doxology. So if you're you're seeing and observing 
and watching as a scientist, whether it's a black hole or an amoeba under the microscope, it has to give you awe when you see all of these things. But again, for the believer, when we step back, if even the heavens declare the glory, it would make sense to me that this is why in Romans we read that man is really without excuse. Look in your microscope. Man's without excuse. Look in the stars. Man is without excuse. So I see your idea of harmony here is so theologically strong. Um, that if people, you know, there's only one name under heaven whereby man will be saved. We come to God through Jesus Christ. But that path is often through the aesthetic or the, it's the academic. And sometimes that awe-inspiring moment, that aha moment, is going, well, there has to be an intelligent creator because this could not have happened by randomness. Which takes me to, I was I think the part that moved me the most in the book was the revelation that your favorite book is Job, not one that we run right. to ordinarily. It's like, hey, wait, can't wait to suffer. Good. Oh, not once, twice he gets attacked by Satan, once all his earthly goods, and then the second time he approaches God, he goes, I know, let me go after his health. So then he goes after his physical health. <laughs> but there's this dialogue about were you there? And you rewrote in the most, in fact, I toyed with saying, I just want to take the rest of the program and have you read what you wrote. But you put in scientific language the dialogue between God and Job that basically was, were you there when I did this? You can't read it all over the air, I know, for deference to time, but give our friends a sense of what you were saying as a scientist. Basically, God talking to Job saying, I'm God, you're not. Let me remind you, you weren't there when I put this all together. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm late to the faith. I came to it late in life, and I began reading the Bible, and uh, I had some trouble with parts of the Old Testament. I didn't really understand it the first time. But when I got to the book of Job, and I, you know, read through the first part, which was a little slow-moving for me, but then I got to God's answer, and it just blew me away. (laughs) Um, This is God answering everyone who questions what God, who God is and what God does. Mm -hmm. And the answer is simple. You have no idea what I did to create this world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, uh, you're my creation, and I love you, but don't think that you could do it. And in fact, we cannot. We cannot make a living cell. We know everything that's in the cell. We know all the chemicals. We can't make one. (laughs) (laughs) And that's very significant. We, you know, we certainly can't make a universe, that's for sure. So what I did was, in this chapter, I took the book of Job, and I I brought it up to date. And, you know, I I, I might just read one paragraph very quickly. Oh, please. Uh, This is is a a modern scientist who has had trouble recently, and he curses God. And no sooner had he uttered these words in the voice of the Lord boomed from heaven, I am the God you seek to curse, and I have some questions for you. Who brought about the fundamental explosion of all matter and energy? Who allowed the forces of the universe to separate and become whole? Where were you when I created gravity and said it's constant to allow for a stable universe? When I made the hyperinflation? When I set up the constants for the strong and weak forces to allow stars to form? Were you present when matter aggregated and heated to form stars and later planets and moons? Was it your idea that when stars exploded at the end of their time, all the elements would seed planets with the material needed for life? And I go on. Mm. Um, I talk about where were you when I brought forth life? Do you know how the code and DNA was formed? Were you there when I had the green plants use quantum physics to find a way to make food from sunlight? And so on. So 
you know, it's an update of Job because Job, you know, when the, the writer of Job did not know this kind of science, mm-hmm. but they knew a lot of science of the time. And that's the words that Job, uh, that God is speaking to Job. How do you, you know, how were you there when, you know, I bound together the, the four corners of the earth, etc. And yeah, that's something that is just as true today as it was then. It, it, and all you did was update the language with what we know now through science that we didn't know then. <laughs> Where were you when I brought forth life? Do you know how to code in DNA was formed? Was it your idea to make catalytic enzymes? And what was your method? I mean, really, he is God, we are not. Amazing. The book is called Science and Faith and Harmony, Contemplations on a Distilled Doxology. Back after this. We're visiting with Dr. Cy Gart, who's editor-in-chief of God and Nature magazine. He's a biochemist by training and profession. He's a prolific author. His latest book is called Science and Faith in Harmony, Contemplations on a Distilled Doxology. And remember, again, at the end of every chapter, there's a QR code. There's a suggestion of a book, an article, and a video, so that if something in that particular piece really piques your attention, this is an opportunity for you to open the door and go further in investigation. It's absolutely a brilliant way in which the book is set up. So one of the chapters, of course, is How Did Life Begin, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And you start by teaching us about, ah, there's a cat in the room. This is important, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But again, from your vantage point as a biochemist, you taught me about the fact that chemicals have to be in place for life to begin. And I'll just quote a little bit of what you wrote. How do the long chains of nucleic acids replicate themselves? How do the proteins gain a catalytic function to become enzymes? And how do membranes form from lipids and proteins to function as semi-permeable barriers? You go on. So in other words, all of these things, whether you subscribe to the Big Bang Theory or how it all started, all of these things had to be in place. And yet we may never get the answer to some of these questions. If science is about, oh, that's how it works, we're never going to get, using that same paradigm, a definitive answer of proof of how it all began. So talk to me about this and take me back to the cat in the room. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me start with the cat. So the whole idea of the cat is, I, I say, suppose you get home and, you're, and there's a cat in your house uh, and you don't know how it got there. Now, and let's say there's no, there's no way to tell how it got there. There's no note. There's nothing. Everything is closed. The only thing you can do at that point is try to understand not how did the cat get there, but how could it have gotten there, okay? Because you'll never know how the cat actually got in. That's where we are in the origin of life. We don't, we're not even asking how did life begin. We're trying to find, we're trying to ask the question, how could have life begun? And that's incredibly difficult. I happen to believe that we are not going to get an answer using the science that we now know. One of the things that I think we have to do is get rid of the some of the scientific um, prejudices that have been around for a long time, such as that there's no such thing as purpose or agency in life. Mm. Uh, this this is a this is an idea that was incorporated uh, by basically skeptical uh, biologists a long time ago. Uh, they don't like the idea of what's called teleology because it sounds like it sounds like injecting metaphysics into science. Mm. 
But without looking at that kind of thing, and there are other new ideas in biology that are very exciting, without using those, we're never going to understand how life could have possibly begun. And I believe, of course, that life began with some, in some, uh, in what's the word, uh, action by divine agency. Mm-hmm. What that was, I don't know. Uh, and you know, it it it's going to be a scientific endeavor to try to understand more. But we're going to need new laws of biology to explain how life could have possibly begun. Because just using the laws we know of chemistry and physics have failed, and I don't believe we'll ever get there. Mm-hmm. There's just too many difficult questions to get answers to. Well, and so you end that particular chapter by telling us that life is not simply a bunch of chemicals, and there are going to be mysteries right. around this. So talk right. to me now as a fellow believer. So even if I'm not going to get the answers, it doesn't mitigate the power and the awe-inspiring nature of God, our Creator. It just means there are mysteries. I mean, when Paul makes the declaration, right. when the Scriptures say, Behold, I show you a mystery, I always right. accept that, and and maybe it means... I don't have a scientifically pursuing mind. On the other hand, I love Christmas, and I'm glad all my presents don't get opened up here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking forward to getting some of the answers to those mysteries later on. But what you've, <laughs> what you've done beautifully throughout this whole book and all of these chapters is really point out again and again and again, there isn't an antagonism there. There isn't an inherent animosity there. In fact, if anything... It's understanding the distinct purpose of faith and science and that really science works in harmony to um, um, ex- not only extrapolate, but really to uh, underscore the authenticity of what God tells us in Scripture. I mean, I'm sure the scientist looks, for example, and says, you want to tell me scientifically how we parted the Red Sea, therefore I can't believe it. You want to tell me scientifically right. how a dead man was raised, I you can't prove it scientifically, right. therefore right. I can't believe it. That's the common and I'll use the word for a second time, that's the common cudgel. How do we, if we're not biochemists by training, and we hear that, how do we respond? Right. Because overwhelmingly, our propensity is to cower. Yeah, the the thing that we have to know is that there's this philosophical idea called scientism, mm-hmm. which holds that the only real answers are scientific ones to any question. We know that that's false, because science can't even answer some of the scientific questions like what is the position and the momentum of an electron at the same time, that's impossible to know. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So the idea that science can give answers to everything is ruled out. And in fact, and this is, as you just said, in our daily lives, we don't rely on science to, you know, to fall in love, to, to know why we <clears throat> excuse me, to know why we enjoy some music and not others, to know why we appreciate art or, or why we laugh. Uh, that's not science. There's no science in there. That's that's something else. That's the work of the soul. That all comes from the having the image of God, in my view. Yes. And so we have to accept that as a valid epistemology, a valid way of knowing the truth. It's not just science. And by the way, most actual scientists agree with this. The people who tend not to agree with it are the kind of online atheists who use science as a crutch. But they don't really know what they're talking about. (laughs) I heartily concur. By the way, C.S. Lewis wrote about the ascendancy of scientism back in the 60s and 70s, where, again, and I think we're seeing this in the post-truth world in which we find ourselves today, 
that mm-hmm. somehow you have to have science to prove everything. Otherwise, it, it's it's negligible. It's yeah. non-existent. And what you write in your book is exactly the opposite. Dr. Guy, exactly. I, I, I want to thank you for, the, for a memorable conversation, but I want to thank you even more for teaching someone who would be in the bottom half of one of your classes in this particular area. But you just opened my heart and my mind to see really this ebb and flow, this harmonious relationship between science and faith. And I thought it was an exquisite book. Thank you so much. I hope we have future conversations. I just enjoyed our time together so much. So let me tell you, friends, I've got a link to Dr. Gart's website. And then on the right-hand side of our information page, I have a copy of the book, Science and Faith and Harmony, Contemplations on a Distilled Doxology. And remember, while I was able to pull out just a few of these, and I'll use Dr. Gart's word again, these vignettes, there are 44 all total with extra resources at the end. So you could spend the next year diving into this and you'd still want more. So check it out. Thank you, Dr. Gart. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time. Retractable claws up to one and a half inches long. Capable of jumping 36 feet. A roar that can be heard five miles away. The lion, king of the beasts. Picture yourself surrounded by several, like Daniel. He determined to pray, though he knew he would pay. Are we willing to face the lions of our culture? Be a Daniel. A challenge from Moody Radio. How long have you been a part of the Moody Radio family? Well, I've been listening to Moody since 1993. And I, I mean, I get up with Moody, I go to bed with Moody, and it just, it's been a blessing in my life for all these years. The teaching and the worship and Moody is a station that is really rooted in the Word of God and they serious about who is God. Serious about God? That's us. And we're seriously grateful for listeners like you. 